go to God in prayer and ask Him for help so that we may understand His Word. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that we may take our eyes off our pressing problems and concerns and the attractions of this world and look to yourself and to see who you are, who Jesus is, what the future brings and uh, that we may be able to make our hearts and our consciences uh, right before you uh, through obedience, through faithfulness and through uh, listening to your word. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, now, when I first became a Christian, uh, which was quite a while ago, I remember a relative of mine uh, said this interesting thing to me when we were at uh, some sort of uh, dinner, family dinner, and he said, oh, it's, it's good that you become a Christian. He says, but whatever you do, uh, don't become a fanatic. Okay? And, uh, well, I wasn't quite sure what he meant by fanatic at one stage, but then he followed it up by saying, well, you know, it's important to take all things in moderation. And I think what he was saying was that, you know, even though you become a Christian, uh, don't live your life uh, fanatically as a Christian and uh, do not uh, take it, go overboard a bit. You know, take it in moderation a bit like, uh, you know, chakwe tiao and salt. Okay? Uh, and basically, that's uh, the general attitude of uh, many people that I met in those days when I told them I was a Christian. They would say, oh, you know, yeah, you know, it's good to have a bit of God, but uh, don't be a fanatic. It's okay to have a bit of Jesus, but don't go overboard, take it in moderation. But I think that the problem that we have as we come to God's Word is that uh, the book of the Bible doesn't give us that option to take God in a very leisurely, half-serious, half-hearted approach. Uh, the Bible seems to say that if we want to believe in God, it's uh, all or nothing. Uh, there is no half-hearted or half-measured approach in our relationship with God. Now, I think we can see that uh, as we've been looking in the book of Revelation over the last few weeks, uh, if you didn't, it's obviously, uh, blame, the, blame the preacher, right? Because I haven't emphasized it enough. But I think as we've looked at the book of Revelation, the, the book of Revelation makes very clear that there is no half-hearted approach in our relationship to God. Now, so far, if you have a look up here on the slide just to refresh you on where we are, we've seen that the book of Revelation is made out of visions, visions which are given to Paul, uh, John, which are now related to us. And uh, there were three distinct visions of judgment, uh, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And as we looked at the drum, the, the, uh, these judgments of the bowls, the trumpets, and the seals, uh, we can see that uh, the Bible is very clear that there are no half-hearted measures when it comes to a relationship with God. You are either saved because of the blood of the Lamb which washes you clean, or you are facing judgment. Uh, and before that, we saw that actually one vision which sort of interspersed those two visions was the vision of these uh, conflicts uh, you know, between uh, the, this great dragon and uh, and God Himself. And again, we saw that uh, when we have a relationship with God, there's no half-heartedness because you either belong to Satan or you belong to God's people. So as we uh, come now to the smaller context, last week we saw uh, another series of visions. The next slide. And this vision began with uh, the world being symbolized by uh, this great prostitute. Okay, uh, She's up here, which... Okay, very immaculately dressed uh, with uh, you know, scarlet and purple with gold and jewels and she's sitting on this great beast on the many waters which represent the many nations and peoples. And we saw that uh, again uh, there was no half-heartedness in our relationship to God because you either belong to uh, this great prostitute and uh, you were ruled by her or you were ruled by God. And last week we saw that uh, the future of uh, this great prostitute which represents uh, anti-God thinking 
uh, living and being would be that she would be thrown down like a millstone, right? This really he- heavy millstone, thrown into the a great ocean and you'll never see her again. And uh, the whole of chapter 18, if you recall from last week, was one of, of uh, a lament. A, a lament meaning a cry of woe, you know, a great cry of sadness by the people who love uh, the great Babylon, this great prostitute. So, the kings of the world uh, will mourn because they miss the glory of Babylon. Uh, the merchants and seamen of the world, they will mourn because they miss the, the money and the luxury of Babylon. And also the nations will mourn because they miss the pleasures of Babylon. And that's where chapter 19 comes, to, comes in. Because it, it, chapter 19 doesn't sort of sit on its own, but it's linked very much with what we saw last week. And this is what it says here in chapter 19, verse 1 to 3. Uh, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for just, sorry, true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Okay, so the, this uh, vision is linked with the previous week's vision last week because it refers back to this great prostitute Babylon. And in chapter 18, while it was a full chapter of people mourning and lamenting this great destruction of this great prostitute Babylon, here we see a different picture in chapter 19 because here there's a great multitude in heaven and instead of going, whoa, 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 is Babylon, they are singing, hallelujah. Now, hallelujah uh, is a word that we often come across, maybe at Christmas time, you know, when you go shopping, you, you hear songs of hallelujah in it. And sometimes people think that hallelujah just means praise God. But hallelujah doesn't just mean praise God, it, it's actually meaning praise Yahweh. That's what hallelujah literally means. It's a conjunction of words that saying praise Yahweh. So it's not just praising any God, but it's praising the God of Israel, the covenant God. So when people say, you know, hallelujah, okay, stop raining, we can play golf now, or hallelujah, we can go and do things, it's actually not understanding what hallelujah means, because it's not just a general exclamation of good fortune, or thank God, but it is praising the God of the Bible, praising the covenant God. And what, is, uh, what are these multitudes in heaven praising God about? Uh, well, it says there, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. For, the word for there is very important, right? There's a, we'll be looking at that word many times today. For, because true and just are His judgments. So basically, they're, they're saying hallelujah because God judges. Because God is a judging God. He just, judges justly. He judges truly. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Uh, what do you praise God for in your life? Uh, you may not say hallelujah, but what do you thank God for? Uh, we sing songs, right? We sing a lot of songs at church. Uh, you know, not just here. Every church this Sunday morning, people will be singing songs. What do they sing songs of praise to God for? Maybe they'll sing songs to God, thanking Him for His love, for His grace, for His blessings, for salvation in Jesus. Maybe some other churches will be praising God for good fortune, right? But, I can't think of any songs that are sung praising God, hallelujah, for His judgment. Can you think of any songs thinking that you can think of that you sung thanking God for His judgment? Not really, right? 
But maybe something wrong with us or our songwriters because here in heaven, in chapter 19, we see that the multitudes in heaven, which we presume are the Christians, right? if we turn it back to what we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation, they are singing to God and praising Him because God judges. Now, I wonder whether you ever thank God for Judgment Day. Well, we will thank God for Judgment Day because we are God's people. You see, if you are not part of Babylon, if you do not love the great prostitute, if you don't live in the great prostitute, if you have come out of the great prostitute, you will thank God for Judgment Day. You will thank God for judgment. It says there in verse 2, or verse 1, isn't it, that salvation, glory and power belongs to our God. See, salvation, not so much uh, salvation from judgment, but salvation from Babylon and Satan and this world comes because God judges on that day. It says there, glory, glory belongs to our God. Now remember, again last week in chapter 18 up here, right, we saw that uh, this world, uh, uh, this is the only time we hear the prostitute speaking, right? She, she says, you know, give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. Right? But therefore, on one day, her plagues will overtake her death and mourning and famine. She'll be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. You see, uh, on that last day when God judges, who receives the glory? God alone receives glory. All the glory that this world seeks for itself will be lost. Remember we saw last week that Babylon was like Babel. And what did Babel try to do? Babel wanted to make a name for herself by building this tower up to heaven. But in the last day when judgment comes, the only one who makes a name for himself is God. So salvation and glory must go to God. But power must also go to God because on that last day he will show that he is more powerful than Satan and the beast. And all the powers and kings of this world. Now, if we believe these three things to be true, do you believe that? That salvation, glory, and power belong to God? Then it must mean that all glory, all power, and all salvation must reside in God alone. He is the only one worthy for us to praise and not mankind. See, when you think about it, how you relate to God's judgment will show whether you belong to Babylon or whether you belong to God's people. Now, I remember uh, uh, some pastors were using this illustration. Uh, next slide. You know, after World War II, in the streets of Singapore, what were they doing? They were celebrating. Uh, in the streets of New York, people were hugging. Okay, uh, There were some pictures of people kissing, but I didn't show it up here. Okay, uh, and, you, know, and, and you can see that you know, when, when the war is won, uh, the people celebrate. But in the streets of Berlin in the streets of uh, Tokyo, what were they doing? They were not celebrating, they were mourning because they had been uh, vanquished, they had lost. So on the last day, where will, you, where will you be? Will you be celebrating God's judgment which brings victory for you as God's people or will you be mourning? Because your attitude to, to, to uh, that last day shows whether you belong to this world and the things get judged or you belong to God and you're part of the victory, or you're part of uh, the winning side. Now, actually the passage goes on to say that as uh, God's people, as Christians, we don't have a choice of whether to celebrate or not. 
Because we are exhorted to celebrate the judgment of God. See, look what it says there in verse 4. It says that we, we have to celebrate and sing hallelujah because God judges justly and truly. So in verse 4, it says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Uh, Amen means truly, right? Yes, let it be so, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both small and great. Now, it shows us that as Christians or God's people, we don't have a choice but to celebrate God's judgment. Because it says there, uh, next slide, uh, it turns, get, this brings us back to chapter 4 and 5, the 24 elders, right, the 24 elders who were in the heavenly throne room, which were on the outside, plus the four um, living creatures, okay, the ones which were very powerful and represented different aspects of uh, the strength of living creatures. Well, they are calling, Amen, truly, let's praise God, hallelujah. Then a voice comes from the throne, okay, so the throne is here, so either God is speaking or Jesus is speaking, and Jesus or God says, praise our God, right, praise God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, both small and great. So it doesn't, we don't have a choice, we have to praise God for his judgment. Now, you notice here how God's people are described, right, it says there, that uh, they are his servants, both small and great. Uh, it's not talking about small people or big people, as in uh, you know, short people and tall people. This is not the Rugby World Cup. Okay? But it's talking in terms of, uh, symbolically, you know, whether you're a king or whether you're a slave, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're powerful or weak, all of those people, as long as they're God's servants, they must praise God for his judgment. But I want you to look at the passage carefully. And, and, and you notice here, it says that all you who fear him, in verse 5. I wonder why, uh, it, you know, John was, saw the vision that way. Why is it those who fear God can sing hallelujah to the judgment of God? Why not those who love him? You know, why fear? Why fear God? Well, I think the context here is again of judgment. Right? Because judgment is a very scary thing. You know, the judgment is sending people to the eternal fires of hell forever and ever. So, in uh, the rest of the Bible, next slide, in the beginning of Proverbs, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That means if you really know God, if you just, you know, if you understand who God is, then you will start to fear Him. Uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, what is the image or picture of God in your mind? Who is he really like? What knowledge do you have of him? Even if you have the beginning of knowledge of God, you will start to fear him. Because he's more powerful than a nuclear bomb, right? We, we saw that already. He is more vast than the universe. He has more knowledge than anything else. It's like, can you stand next to a nuclear bomb and not feel some uh, measure of fear? Well, you must feel fear, isn't it? So that's why it says here, those of you who know God and reverence and fear Him, you will sing hallelujah when He comes in judgment. Now remember, uh, a preacher was once telling this illustration a long time ago about how he, this person uh, claimed that he had met God. 
Okay, and this person said, that, you know, one, one morning they woke up and uh, they saw God sitting at the foot of the bed. And uh, the preacher asked uh, this man, he said, oh, you know, what, what, what happened when God was sitting in, at, at the foot of your bed? He said, oh, we just had a conversation. And then the preacher said, well, then you never really met God because if you met God, you would have been filled with fear. Because that is what it's like when you meet an all-powerful, all-knowing God who knows your deepest, darkest secrets. You know, again, in Exodus chapter 3, in the Old Testament and Isaiah, that's what happens when people meet God. They're always afraid. Right? So Moses uh, meets God, right? So God says to Moses, Do not come any closer. Uh, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. See, that's what God is like. When you know God, when you meet God, you are afraid. Because He is not like us. He is not your buddy. He is not your friend. He is this all-powerful God. Again, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. See, that's what, it, that's what God is like. God is a powerful, fearsome God. And if we know Him, we fear Him, and we can rejoice when He comes in judgment to save us from the great prostitute of the Babylon of this world. But uh, it would be very depressing if all that was was just judgment, and uh, the, that's it, right? Movie ends, game over. Because in verse 6 to verse 8, it shows that actually the judgment leads to something else. The judgment is a a means something else. So in verse 6 it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, again, uh, the people in heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder. Uh, If you ever have been in a waterfall, or you've heard thunder, that's what it sounds like. Okay, very loud, overwhelming, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, again, Hallelujah! Praise God! And why? Well, there's another for there, right? In my NIV, it says, For our Lord God Almighty reigns. For, because, it doesn't say the Lord God Almighty reigns, our, our Lord God Almighty reigns. It's our God who reigns. And that's why we can, we can praise God, hallelujah, because it is our God who reigns. It is not Satan who reigns. It is not Babylon. It is our God who reigns. I wonder whether you can... You can express those sentiments that your God will reign forever and ever and ever. And again, this is a very similar uh, concept to what we saw earlier. Okay, if you look up here, uh, we saw in the seventh trumpet, which was this vision up here, that on the seventh trumpet, uh, there was a vision of God reigning. Okay, so Revelation chapter 11, next slide. So then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, again, same visual imagery, eh? 24 elders 
who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and begun to reign. Okay, so, as we said before, uh, many of the visions in the Revelation sort of overlap one another. There's, there's sort of a, a bit of a, a dovetailing. And here, the vision, they're tied together, isn't it? When judgment comes, it will bring God's absolute and eternal reign into being. When he comes and overthrows the powers of the wicked and the anti-God uh, thinking, living and being, he will reign. Uh, that's why when you pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know the Lord's Prayer? Okay, what is the first verse of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in Heaven, hello be your, thy name, your kingdom come. And that's what it means when, when we ask for God's kingdom to come, we are asking for God's eternal kingdom to come on this earth. And that's why it's a time of rejoicing and gladness. That's why it says there, read carefully, Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And we will be together with God when He reigns. Because the very next sentence says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. And again, four, right? You should highlight all the fours, okay? In, the, in this passage, four, the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now, I don't know about you, but generally, uh, weddings are very, very happy occasions. Okay? Especially if you are the one getting married. Uh, right? It's a very joyous occasion. It's a time of rejoicing. But this wedding actually includes us, isn't it? That's what the passage says, because the imagery is like quite fluid. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And the bride is us. We are the bride. The church is the bride. We are to be married to, to Jesus. He is the Lamb and we are the Bride. And it's a very joyous occasion because we, on that last day when God reigns after the judgment, we will be together united with Jesus and we will be in heaven with Him. But, it says there in verse 8, the fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now, very strange, isn't it, how uh, the imagery sort of shifts from the wedding uh, to the bride and the lamb to the bride's clothes. But actually, it's not very strange like, because if, if any of you ever gotten married, you know that uh, the bride's clothes are very important. Okay? Now, if, you, if you've never gotten married, you, you, you probably don't realize, but women spend a lot of time thinking about what they're going to wear when you get, you get married. And as the husband, or the, potent, the husband to be, they will always be asking, do I look good in this? And you have to go and see all the clothes, the zillion clothes that they're trying on, right? And uh, at the end of the day, you know, the attention at the wedding is always on what the bride is wearing, right? I mean, no one says, oh yeah, yeah, the bridegroom, he looked really good in his suit, right? right? It's always on the attention, what is the bride wearing? Okay, so if you look up here, all right, this is the most famous wedding recently, right? Kate Middleton to Prince, Prince William, right? So everybody's saying, oh, what is... What is she wearing, right? What is she wearing? Doesn't mean much for us as guys, okay? But then, here in this picture, the guys are supposed to get the, the idea, okay, that the clothes of the bride are very important. So what are these clothes that uh, we all have to wear, including guys, okay? Because we're, we're part of the bride. It says here that we're supposed to wear fine linen, bright and clean. And in verse 8, it says that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, this is a bit of a surprise to us. Okay, because in the past, uh, okay, you can close it. If not, people get distracted. Okay, the the, the fine linen uh, 
it's a bit of a surprise to us because we expect the fine linen to be the white robes that Jesus has washed with his blood, isn't it? That's the image that we've been having in the book of Revelation. We keep thinking the white clothes. Okay, that must be uh, Jesus giving us white robes that are washed clean with his blood on, on the cross. But the interesting thing here, it says, it's actually given us a commentary that the fine linen stands, no, not for Jesus' blood on the cross, but for the righteous acts of the saints. That means the faithful and obedient things that Christians do. Now, this idea again is not a new idea because in Revelation chapter 3, uh, it has a similar idea. Alright, it says to the church in Sardis, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. So what these white clothes of um, the bride that is being worn are clothes which are clean, you know, bright and fresh. They are not soiled and dirty by sin and rebellion and wickedness. They are righteous acts. They are faithful and obedient acts of Christians. And I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense, you see, because when you look at chapter 17 and 18, when you look at chapter 19, there's a contrast between the great prostitute and the lamb. Sorry, sorry, wrong. The great prostitute and the bride. Okay? See, you're not paying attention. The great prostitute and the bride. There's a contrast between the great prostitute and the bride. Because when you think of pro- the prostitute, what do you think of? The prostitute stands for unfaithfulness, adultery, Right? Uh, uh, immorality. But when you think of a bride, what do you think of? Uh, you know, the bride is a picture of the church. What do you think of? It must be faithfulness, uh, purity. Okay, so the, the, the church, God's people, do not look like the prostitute because they don't act like the prostitute. They are faithful, they are pure before the Lamb. Again, uh, this picture is always very helpful. I keep going back to it, right? Look at the way the prostitute was dressed. Okay, you can you can look back for yourself in chapter seventeen. I think it was in verse um, verse three and four. She she was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, and she held in a golden cup filled with abominable things and filled with her adulteries. Right, so she's dressed uh, the prostitute in gold and glitter and pearls and luxury. But what is the, bri- the bride dressed in? It's fine linen. So even by looking at the two women, you can see that the prostitute stands for luxurious living, isn't it? Uh, a lot of pearls, and I mean, not to say that pearls are bad, okay, or gold is bad, but, but what it symbolizes in the prostitute is like luxurious living, greed, materialism. But the bride, well, she's dressed in a very modest way, you know, a very simple way. And what is the prostitute doing? Well, she's got a golden cup in her hand and the golden cup is filled with abominable things and the filth of adulteries. Right? So, the bride and the prostitute are like two different sorts of people, completely different sorts of people. And here we are told that if we want to celebrate and say hallelujah to the judgment of God, we've got to be like the bride. We are the bride. And how do we, are we like the bride? Because we are dressed in righteous acts. So when you look at your life, what clothes are you wearing? When people look at you, do they see uh, the bride of Christ in the way that you act? 
Or do they see uh, the clothes of the great prostitute on you? Because we know that that wedding day is coming just as much as judgment day is coming. And we need to spend our life getting ready for that wedding day. We've got to spend everything in our life getting ready for that wedding day. Are you ready for that wedding day? Uh, will you be part of the bride on that day? Now again, uh, the picture is very fluid. And the verse 9, it says, Then the angel said to me, Blessed, uh, right, sorry, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, These are the true words of God. Now, again, the picture is very strange, because one minute you're the bride, next minute you're the guest. Okay, kind of a strange wedding, because the guests are the bride. But, it's sort of saying that the guests at this wedding are, are the ones who have the greatest privileges, because it says here, blessed, right? Uh, it's not a word that the Bible uses very uh, lightly. It literally means you're blessed in every way, that you're blessed by God in every way. And he says, blessed are those who come to this wedding. Now, I don't know about you, but I've said no to uh, many wedding invitations in my lifetime. Right? Maybe you don't know the people very well. Maybe it's my dad's friends, you know, things like that. Uh, maybe you're too busy. But this is one wedding that you must attend. You can afford to miss. The wedding of the, the Lamb. Now, Jesus uh, uses this, this idea of this blessed if those go to the you know, wedding uh, supper or wedding banquet many times in, uh, in his ministry. And he has the same idea here of it is very important for you to make sure that you get to this wedding. See, in Luke chapter 14, he, uh, he uses this parable. Okay, next slide. Uh, sorry if it's a bit small. Let's try to get all of it in. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Same idea, okay? wedding banquet, wedding feast. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Now what I want you to pay attention to here is the same idea of being blessed, isn't it? Of coming to this great supper of God, this great wedding of God, sort of the, the idea of gathering. But you notice here that the people keep making excuses. Okay, the word keeps uh, being emphasized here. They keep making excuses. Uh, there's a difference between excuse and reason. I learned that at school, see? Excuses when you make uh, reasons which are not relevant, right? Uh, I didn't do my homework because, uh, you know, overslept. Excuse, okay? It's the same thing. He's saying, look, these are all excuses. There is no real good, you know, reason for you not to make it to this wedding banquet. And here it says here, the first person was too busy with business. Right? He is too busy with business. Isn't that what he says here? It says there that the first person uh, said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Uh, that's an excuse. Now, I'm too busy with business. I can't come to the wedding banquet. Another person said, uh, I bought some oxen uh, and I've got to go and test drive them. Oh, sorry, something like that. Right? And, um, you know, 
He's too busy with his possessions. This person is too busy with his possessions. And the last person, well, you think that marriage, well, marriage is a good reason, but he's too busy with his relationships. His relationships have kept him from going to this great supper, to the wedding banquet of God. So I wonder what it is for you. Are you, have you, are you ready? Are you, you know, looking forward to going to this great wedding banquet? Or do you only have excuses in your life? Because blessed are those who are invited and who attend. Now, the picture changes very vividly. I, I, I was going to talk a bit about verse 10, about uh, the testimony of Jesus' spirit prophecy. Uh, but I think, it, you know, you'll you talk about that in your Bible studies, hopefully. But I think the picture now changes very radically from the, from the emphasis to the wedding to the lamb, isn't it? And we see the lamb is actually a very different sort of lamb. Because in verse 11 it says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The enemies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads them. Uh, he treads the winepress of the, of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, um, here we have a very, very different picture of Jesus. Again, chapter 19 is quite remarkable because we see God and Jesus in ways that we normally don't think of. So, um, if you look up here in my Microsoft Office, I inserted the word Jesus. Okay, see what pictures of Jesus I can get. What, what is the popular image of Jesus? So, Jesus, people think of baby Jesus. Right? Uh, Jesus, people think of the lamb. Okay? You, you can, I'm sure all of you have Microsoft Office though. Okay, Microsoft is everywhere, together Apple. And uh, Jesus, you know, this holy man who walks around barefoot, you know. That's how people think of Jesus. But here's a radical picture of Jesus because he is like this warrior judge. Okay, it's like chap- the early part of chapter 19 talks about God being this fearsome judge. Well, the second half of chapter 19 speaks of Jesus. He is the one who executes the judgment. He is the warrior judge. See, look at what it says there in verse 11. Very important to pay attention here because we have all these pictures of Jesus but when we really concentrate on the verses it blows our mind away about what we see about Jesus. Right? With justice, he judges and part of judging is making war. That's what it says there. Verse 11, he judges and makes war. He is a warrior judge. And that's why all the pictures of Jesus which flow show just how terrifying this judge is when he makes war against his enemies. Now, um, this picture was drawn for us, again, by a member of our congregation, but I thought that actually no picture can capture just how fearsome uh, this image of Jesus really is. So you look at the description of him, his eyes there are like blazing fire. Now, we don't know what the blazing fire means. Some people say that he can see into your heart, you know, whatever. But imagine meeting someone in a dark alley in Geylang with blazing fire eyes, okay? That is a really scary picture. 
Okay, it's, it's a, I mean, whatever it is, it's a fearsome picture. He's got blazing eyes. His head has many crowns. He's a ruler. Okay, he's destined to rule. And it says that his, 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 he is dressed in a robe which is dipped in blood. In verse 13. Now, some people uh, would say that oh, the blood is from the cross. Uh, this, this blood symbolizes uh, the, his own blood from the cross. But I think that most people would say, no, it's not symbolizing Jesus' blood on the cross. Because the whole, it's inconsistent, the whole image. The whole image is, is a fearsome image of Jesus the warrior, right? So where does the blood come from? Well, the blood is actually coming from people. Because, of, see, in verse, um, verse 15, he treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. Now, if you remember, in chapter 14, uh, next slide, we saw that part of God's judgment was there was this giant wine press, uh, grape, not wine press, there was a wine press where you know, all the people went in and, and they were treaded on, all the blood flowed out. So if God, if Jesus is, is the one who treads on this wine press, then his robe is dipped in blood because you know, if you're stepping on uh, grapes, then usually your pants or whatever get grape or blood stain on them. And Jesus is, is this fearsome image of this person who is treading in judgment on people. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down his enemies. Uh, I mean, literally, it means his words have power. They are his, his offensive weapon. He doesn't need a bow, an arrow, or a double-edged sword, in that sense. He rules them with an iron scepter. Okay, next slide. Again, it refers back to ch- Psalm chapter 2, where, you know, with his iron scepter, he, he, he will dash to pieces like pottery all the nations of the earth that stand against him. You see that? You will rule them with the iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like posture. Again, a very fearsome, scary image. And it says that on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now you might want to ask yourself, why is it uh, Jesus' name is not written on his forehead or something? Why is it on his thigh? Well, I, I think many uh, scholars and commentators say it's a very logical thing to do because uh, if you're sitting on a horse and I'm... At walking along, what do I see when I see you? I see your thigh. Okay, I, I remember in Australia and Sydney, they have these policemen who are on horseback. Maybe you see it in London or wherever you go, right? And uh, they're quite, I mean, you don't walk too close to them because the horses are really big and uh, they're sitting on them and, and they're, they're like much higher than you and they're very powerful and scary looking. That's why they always use them for riot police or whatever, right? Because that, that's, the, that's the picture we're looking at here. Jesus is on this huge horse, uh, presumably with his thigh about your face height, and you can see his inscription on his thigh. And it's a very, you know, overwhelming and frightening picture of Jesus. And this picture of Jesus then makes sense of what happens afterwards, right? Because he goes to war against all the Babylon and the beasts and all the kings and the nations which are arrayed against him. Because in verse 17 he says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Okay, he's not standing in the sunshine. He's standing in the sun, okay? Who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come and gather together for the great supper of, the, of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider and the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, 
and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves in their flesh. Now, uh, kind of a very dark picture, right? Uh, at least M18, R21, right? Because in contrast to the wedding supper, we see another supper. And in this supper, if you can close your eyes and imagine, but we've never been at war, but if you imagine war, right, uh, and you see all the people lying dead on the field, maybe cut down by machine gun fire or whatever, and then the birds come and feed on the bodies. And what you see here is a picture of overwhelming victory, isn't it? Because all, that's what it says there, if you look at it, it says, all these people, the kings, the generals, mighty men, horses, riders, they are all defeated and they're all lying dead there and the birds come and eat them. So this is not the sort of battle we expect, isn't it? Uh, it's not like a, it wouldn't even make a good movie. Right? You couldn't have made a movie from chapter 19 because the battle is, is won very quickly, almost immediately, and it's won overwhelmingly. There's, there's no struggle. This is not, the, not like the Lord of the Rings, right? You know, remember that Lord of the Rings had that huge big battle at the end, right? the, the battle of Helm's Deep or whatever. Right? No, there's no drama. Jesus comes and he kills them all by speaking a word. You notice here, you look at the, if you look at the text, right? Uh, before we saw that uh, accompanying Jesus were the armies of heaven who were also riding white horses and dressed in white linen. But uh, I think they're only there for ceremonial purposes, right? They, they don't actually do any fighting at all. We don't see them do any fighting. All they do is they're, they're spectators. Jesus does the fighting and the, the battle's all over. And the beast, in spite of the power, and the false prophet, in spite of his uh, deception, they are thrown into the lake of fire to suffer forever and ever. And here, all the other people are all killed. Now, the contrast is very clear. Where would you, uh, which supper would you rather be? You can choose to be at the, the wedding supper of the lamb and be a guest, or you can be at the, I call them the bird supper, as the main course. Because that, that's what the two pictures are, isn't it? You can either be, at, uh, be the, the main course at the bird supper, or you can be the guest at the, the wedding supper. And we know here that the overwhelming power of God and Jesus will reign at the end. Uh, there is no doubt in this battle. A judgment will come, God will reign, and all of God's enemies represented by the prostitute and uh, Satan and, and the, the great Babylon, they will all be defeated. So which side would you be on? Well, ultimately, the only logical choice would be to be on the side of God. Now, if you're on the side of God, this is a cause of great celebration. You should be saying, Hallelujah. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom come, that's what we should be feeling because finally all wickedness, all evil, all sin, all anti-God living will be overthrown by God and He will reign forever and ever. I wonder whether we don't feel that way because we don't, we don't see the distinction between being part of the bride and being part of this world. Now, I debated whether I should show you this picture, but I'll show it to you anyway because everybody's seen it. Uh, next slide. Okay, this picture here is a very, very famous picture. I think it's like the top five most famous pictures in the whole world. Okay, uh, according to internet as well. It's, um, it won a Pulitzer Prize for some uh, photographer. And basically it shows uh, this uh, voucher who like, is waiting for this child to die uh, because this child was going to some food station in, 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 in Africa, like Somalia, I think. And I think it was in Time magazine or something. 
But uh, the, the guy that took this photograph, he was quite a, a claimed photographer, he took this photograph, but three months later he committed suicide. And in his suicide note, he said that, you know, I'm haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses and anger and pain, of starving or wounded children, of trigger-happy madmen, often police, and of killer executioners. And I think that, you know, when I... You can read it on the internet, I'm not making all this up, right? I think the problem with, uh, with what this guy, his name is Kevin Carter, was that, you know, when you see evil, when you really see evil, when you really see wickedness, when you see sin in this world, when you see people living in an anti-God way, right? Uh, then, without God, and without the idea of judgment and final victory in God's reign, what are you left with? You're left with despair, isn't it? Despondency and hopelessness. Who is going to stand up uh, for the people like, the poor children like this, who, you know, against uh, the people who come and maraud and steal and kill and rape and pillage and uh, have enough uh, money to buy gold-plated, uh, you know, apparently gold-plated bathtubs and things like that. Uh, if there is no God, if there is no Jesus, then you, the, you, you're only left with what this guy, Kevin Carter, said, right? There's only uh, hopelessness and despair. But then we're different, isn't it? We're not like Kevin Carter because we know that at the very last day, God will judge. And Jesus will come in judgment. And when He comes in judgment, uh, all wrongs will be judged. All glory will belong to God. All salvation will belong to God. All power will belong to God. Jesus, through the sword of his mouth, will judge all those who are wicked, evil, and anti-God. Now, therefore, if we believe in God, we must take him, uh, not half-heartedly or in a leisurely way, or in a moderate way, but we must be fanatics for God. We must be full on for God. Because God is this sort of God. He is not a small God. He is not your buddy. But He is a judging God. And you want to make sure that you are at that wedding banquet with the Lamb. You want to make sure you are on His side. So as you live today, as you consider Jesus, are you ready for that wedding day? Are you dressed in bright, fine linen, bright and clean? Are you single-minded in coming out of Babylon? Are you truly uh, you know, rejoicing and looking forward, saying, Hallelujah, for God's kingdom will come? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, help us to see that your judgment and the judgment of Jesus is as real as the chairs that we are sitting on, as the uh, light that uh, we see, as... Uh, the aircon that we feel that it is truly a real hard truth and that all of us here, every one of us here, uh, we really pray, will take seriously your judgment, the future reign of your kingdom on this earth, uh, the wedding between uh, the bride and the lamb and that we will not live lives indulging in the Babylon of this world, compromised by sin and wickedness, and uh, that we will not give ourselves over to be seduced uh, by the things of this world, but we will always be single-mindedly faithful to you and obedient to you and faithful to Jesus in everything that we do as we truly look forward to that wedding supper. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.